I read this really profound book by Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's actually a, he, he was a, a rabbi, um, and he wrote a book called The Prophets, and it's actually an incredible resource. I, I would actually highly recommend it. And one of the things that he says about the prophets, he said the prophet is an iconoclast, that no one is just, I think this is really key, no, no knowing is strong enough, no trust complete enough, the prophet hates the approximate, he shuns the middle of the road, man must live on the summit to avoid the abyss. I like what he's saying here is that the prophet is recognizing the fundamental problem with the human condition, that the smallest sin is enough to separate, that our brokenness actually keeps us from experiencing the blessing of God, and the prophet seems to care about things that don't seem to be that big of a deal, and they take them really seriously. He said the the prophet is like the voice of a screech in the night. He goes on to say that others may suffer from the terror of cosmic aloneness, but the prophet is overwhelmed by the grandeur of divine presence. And this is one of the, the key things, one of the reasons I love the prophets because they point us to the gospel because they feel the unbelievable burden of human sinfulness and at the same time feel God's desperate desire, his compassion and desire to set right what is wrong. So they will become both conduits of judgment upon sin and at the same time a call to hope in God alone for their salvation because the prophets seem to care, carry and bear the unbelievable weight of the fact that humans cannot save themselves. And so when we look at this text today, what I want you to, to, to see in Hosea, which is something that you'll feel in all of the prophets, is the pathos of God. He felt it deeply. The severity of his wrath towards sin, his compassion and love for his people, and his anger and heartbreak at the unfaithfulness. An unfortunate, uh, an unfortunate attribute that was attributed to God uh, by theologians uh, through the Middle Ages and into the Reformation uh, that we still kind of feel the impacts of that actually has its root not in Scripture but more in Greek philosophy is the, is the attribute of God's impassibility, uh, which is this idea that God doesn't feel anything. You definitely do not come to that conclusion by just reading the Bible. He seems to feel deeply. And so here we have this reality this, that Hosea reveals that stronger than God's jealousy, his anger, and his heartbreak over his people's infidelity was his desire and plan for their reunion. That God has a deeper magic from across the sea. <laughs> Something that goes beyond human comprehension. It's called the radical grace of Jesus, the one-way love of God. A love that has nothing to do with you or I, and it comes from God and God alone. And so what I want us to see today is this beautiful text in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the valley of trouble. And if we can get the next slide, please. Hosea, declaring the words of the Lord, to an adulterous people, a people that had chased after 
other gods, a people that had chased after. Their religious impulse is alive and well. They have abandoned the God of their faith. And Hosea says this. This is what God has to say to them. In the midst of this adultery, he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. He is speaking of Israel as if Israel is his bride. He says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Now, I want you to know that wilderness is a place of barrenness, but wilderness was also a place where Israel first felt the redemptive work of Yahweh. This is where Israel experienced the liberation from the slavery of Egypt uh, as they moved toward the promised land. But the wilderness was also a place of great correction. It was a place of stripping down. It was a place where the rebellion of the human heart was completely unveiled because it only took a few days after they were delivered from Israel before they were grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses for being led into this place of barrenness. And I think it's significant that God says, my path to redemption is to bring them back into a place where everything is stripped away so that they are able to see who I am and who they are in the light of who I am. But look what he says. I'll bring her into a place of barrenness, but what will he do? Speak harshly? No, he says, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor and that word means trouble. The valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Uh, many of you may not have known that this is the passage uh, where we get the name of our church from. That the valley of trouble is the door of hope. And what I mean by that is that you are all a bunch of stinking troublers and God's really gracious, which means that there's hope. That we are a people who are deeply in trouble <laughs> unless God does something about it. And what I want us to look at is this, this unique and, and, and fascinating passage because Achor only appears three times in the scriptures. It appears in Joshua, in Isaiah, and then here in Hosea, and each time it appears, it gives us an, a beautiful understanding of the work of Calvary. I believe that Achor is a type of Calvary, a type of the cross. It gives us a picture of God's redemptive work. And then to, to understand this incredible promise that God is making uh, to Israel through the prophet Hosea, we have to actually look at the place where Achor first appears. And Achor first appears in the book of Joshua, and we see it here as a place where judgment is satisfied, or another way of saying that, a place where sin is forgiven. Now, before we read the text that's on the screen behind me, let me just give you a little backstory. Israel has, has uh, is followed Joshua. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. Joshua has led the children of Israel uh, into the promised land, and they have, they have taken on their first major battle. It was the battle of Jericho. And God gave very, very specific directions to the children of Israel that they were to take nothing of the accursed things uh, from Jericho, but it was to be utterly destroyed. 
And they, there was wicked idolatry. God's desire was to create a place where the children of Israel would be protected from that idolatry, where they could enter into covenantal relationship with him, that through them, they would be a picture to the world of what covenant faithfulness looks like and what relationship with God looks like. Unfortunately, through their rebellion, that did not happen. Uh, but they became inward focused uh, and they turned their election rather into a call by which God is to be reflected to the nations. They turned their election into who's in and who's out. But here we see this, this powerful battle of Jericho. Israel is victorious, but there is a man named Achan. And literally, his name means troubler. And he takes some of the accursed things from Jericho and hides them under his tent. The children of Israel go out to another battle, the battle of Ai, and it is there that they are defeated. Joshua comes before the Lord uh, in a panic, upset, in tears, and God says, there is sin in the camp. You must remove the sin from the camp. This is where we get that theological concept of a little leaven leavens the whole lump that God takes sin really seriously. Now let me just remind you once again that sin is not the little things that we do wrong, but it is a rebellion against God's rule. It is the natural default setting of the human heart to actually be autonomous, to make decisions for our lives without taking God into consideration. Don't think for a second when you read through books like Hosea that Israel wasn't religious. <laughs> that it probably thought it was doing the right things. The, the issue is autonomy from God, rebellion against God's rule, and a rejection of His grace. But that leads to all sorts of issues. Now, Joshua comes before the children of Israel, and it's a fascinating passage because when Achan comes before him, God reveals that this is the man who has taken the accursed thing, and, and Joshua says actually tenderly to him, what have you done, my son? And he confesses his sin. And the sin is to be forgiven, but not without the consequence. And it's not forgiven in the way that we like to think of sin being forgiven. It literally, Achan becomes a picture, an object lesson of sin and how it has to be put away. How sin, the wages of sin is death that real judgment is necessary for sin. And the problem, and what's so terrifying about this passage, is it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Is it worthy of capital punishment? But this is the natural default setting of our human hearts is that we never feel like we're actually that deserving of judgment. And that's because we're looking at everything from this side of grace. And look what it says in Joshua chapter 7, verses 24 to 26. It says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and his donkeys, and his sheep and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, what you, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. It is the Valley of Trouble. It is a place where sin, the sin in Israel was judged. 
and God's anger was displaced. It was satisfied. Justice was satisfied. Now, this is a troubling story, and I recognize that this, this story, like, like, whoa, that just seems so severe. And one of the things that makes it so severe is actually how rare that is in Scripture because God's mercy, the scales tip toward mercy, actually, in the Old Testament as well in the New. And I want to just remind you, because we have to look at this through the lens of the Gospel, is what we have here is a type of Calvary. We need to look forward to the cross because this is the seriousness of sin, how serious God takes sin, but God's grace, that strange magic from an, across the sea, and I could borrow from C.S. Lewis, what, what, is, what is being pointed to here? Because Dorothy Sayers said it best, before we start being frustrated that God brings that kind of severe judgment, let us remind ourselves of what the gospel declares. Because Dorothy Sayers said it best when she said, whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. And when we look forward to Jesus, what we see is that the sinful situation the human condition, it's, it's what the reformers were kind of viewed as sort of the, the threefold issue about and, and what I call low anthropology. That is, that we have original sin. Sin is not just something that we do, it's something that we are. It's what Paul was saying in Romans 7 when he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Sin is a serious issue. It brings death. The wages of sin are death. It brings separation, not only between us and God, but it actually ruins our relationships with one another, and it destroys our lives. And it continues to be an issue today. It continues to be an issue moment by moment in our lives. It is so problematic that it has actually made it impossible for us to reach God in our own effort. Religion is man's attempt to reach God in his own effort. The gospel is God actually reaching down into man's brokenness and making a way. Religion says, live like this and I will accept you, says God. The gospel says, I have accepted you in Jesus Christ. Now live like this. Now here is the power of what we are looking at here because when we think about Israel, we think about Achan as the troubler and we think about the valley of Achor as a valley of trouble, a place where sin is judged. We must look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 27 when He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour I have come to for this purpose I have come to this hour. And what was it that he had come to? He had come to be both the judge and the judged in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the verse that I love to quote more than any other verse in the Bible because it is so mysterious and so essential to our understanding of the gospel. He says, for he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So here is this reality, the or original sin. Sin plagues the human condition. We cannot escape it. We are fundamentally broken. We are like, we are like the alcoholics in an AA meeting. You come in and everyone is on the same playing field. And this is why I keep saying over the last few weeks that if church was to actually function the way I believe church is meant to function, we would function a lot more like an AA meeting. We would come in and say, hi, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here today. 
uh, we would recognize that we are all functioning from an even playing field. We are fundamentally broken, desperately in need of grace. But here is the second reality, is that that original sin plays itself out in what the reformers called, they, they called it total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that you're incapable of doing anything good. It just means that the good that we do is still mixture. It means that in this life, until we receive our, our glorified bodies and enter into eternity, it should create within us a hunger for the, an eternal perspective. I think one of the things that's lacking in church today is a hunger for eternity. Uh, we think that the best that we're going to experience is now, which is, I think, fundamentally one of the great problems in the church today, is there isn't enough recognition that in this life we continue to be broken and daily need to cast ourselves in dependence, as Luther called it, naked trust upon the mercy of God. Because total depravity means that everything I do, even the good things I do, why did I shave my head? Because I'm vain. Dang it. I don't want to look like the suburban youth pastor. Uh, why, what, 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 what is it about preaching that is so dangerous? Because someone says you did a good job and immediately I forgot that it was God who spoke. Why is it that when I wake up in the morning, I'm irritated before I even get out of, out of bed because I'm fundamentally broken? Now, I'm not downplaying the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. I'm just reminding you that the only thing we really have the ability to do is daily surrender to say yes to God's yes, that the Spirit actually can begin to function through us, that His fruit would be manifested because naturally we move away from that and right back into that default setting of defining for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And this creates the third reality of that original sin to total depravity, which leads to, especially before we experience the salvation of the gospel, is what Luther refers to as the bondage of the will, or what I would call the unfree will. It's not that we're all robots and everything is everything is planned, everything we do has already been ordained for us, what it means, what Luther meant by that, he actually wasn't that concerned with what we did horizontally. What he was concerned with was man's ability to reach God in his own ability. It would require God to reach down into man's brokenness to make himself known. And this is why I believe in the gospel that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We need to understand that even evangelism I heard it said really well on Thursday night that evangelism is nothing more than entering into a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with someone. That God is drawn. When Jesus is lifted up, we should trust that he's at work. He's drawing people to himself. He is illuminating the mind enough to say yes to the yes that has already been declared over them in Jesus Christ. Sin binds us and it enslaves us and it must be judged and this is where the good news gets so good it's so good because the bad news is so stinking bad you can't escape the bad news in the prophets because when i read through the prophets i'm like they're not that bad we're so much worse it's like the it's like the the sins of like in the when i read the writings of the reformation i'm like man the things that they were upset with like if only they lived today. I was thinking about Tozer writing in the 50s about how the church is being, being driven by its desire to, to ape and to imitate the entertainment of the world. And I'm like, buddy, you have no idea what you're talking about. We're seeing things that would make you not just roll over, but just be in a perpetual spin in your grave. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's amazing. We're not just offering Jesus as the bread of life. We are dressing him up in all sorts of ways to make him palatable for our modern sensibilities. And so here is the reality is that sin is a, is a fundamental broken thing, but Jesus came not just to identify with our humanity. It says that he who knew no sin became sin. He entered into the baptism of repentance, which means that he came to identify fundamentally with our brokenness, which is good news because it means that at the cross of Calvary, he was able to take our sin into himself and free us from the guilt and shame that we are plagued with. Look what it says in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future. It doesn't mean we do not sin. It means that we have been forgiven of all sin. And when forgiveness occurs and it fully anchors itself in the human heart, it frees, we can lift our heads again. This is why Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's this whole idea right now that in this post-Christian age, people don't really understand sin. That's bogus. We all fundamentally feel the exhaustion of trying to justify our own existence and our own effort. People know they're broken. We know it. I, I joke, I found a notebook uh, that I had written when I was, I used to just write songs, like three to five songs every week. When I was like 20, I went to Seattle to be famous, and in my notebook, my first notebook with my earliest lyrics, which are so bad, so sinful, uh, sinful for how bad they are, <laughs> and, uh, and really, it's so trite, but on page like 14 of my notebook, I wrote out this, I wasn't even a believer, the 75 things I hate about Josh White. It's fascinating. You guys, for those of you who are psychology majors, you can think about that and tell me what's wrong with me. <laughs> but, but that was the thing. I understood I was broken without any concept of the gospel at all. I hated so much about myself. We often still, even as believers, struggle with that same sort of condemnation when we allow the enemy to speak to us and we forget the gospel. We forget what it is that we're anchored into. Look at this next passage. Let's go back to Hosea. Because in Hosea 13, 14 and Hosea 14, 4, we see that judgment has been satisfied. Hosea is already looking forward to the cross through the finished work of Jesus to the Messiah. And he says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, from hell. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Hosea 14.4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. I love that. God alone is free. And what is his sovereignty? It is his freedom to love sinners in their sin. The powerful thing is the holy God, which means he's not content to leave us there. There is hope for transformation. For my anger has turned from them. Hosea is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah that in Jesus, the sin of humanity would be dealt with. He becomes the one for the many and the many in the one. So powerful. The second place we find Achor in Scripture is in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 6510. Uh, and this is powerful because we move from this dark theme of a place where sin is judged or where judgment is satisfied, which is actually a positive theme but just comes from, innate, from an ugly angle. 
because sin is so serious, but God's forgiveness is so good, is that the reality is that when we are forgiven, this is where the valley of trouble becomes for us. And look what he says to the prophet Isaiah. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. I'm sorry if you don't like be calling, being called a herd, uh, but the idea is that he's the good shepherd and we're the sheep. It's not, it's not meant to be, a, we're not talking herd mentality. Uh, Acre is a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. What's fascinating is that scripture says that there's no one who seeks him and there's no one who does good. So it is Jesus, it is God who has sought us. That Jesus becomes, becomes both both from man to God and from God to man, he becomes the one who shows us what it looks like to seek God, but he also becomes the very revelation and the means by which God seeks and saves that which is lost. And so he becomes the conduit. He becomes the bridge, or excuse me, the, the, the ladder between God and man. He is himself the ladder, which gets us off of the ladders of exhaustion and way which we try to justify our existence. And so here we're told that the valley of trouble, when we see it as a place where sin has been dealt with, it becomes now a place of rest. And what is the spirit of this age? How would you describe our, the climate of our current culture? What would be the word that you would use to describe it? Anyone? Hopelessness. I think that's a, that is a good one. I would say anxiety, actually, is probably nervousness. There is a frenetic energy that is a negative energy that actually defines our culture. It is, it is what David Foster Wallace calls a peculiar American loneliness, but it's not just American, it's global. It is the isolation that, that we have more. Is this, it, what's crazy, I was thinking about it, I was talking with my son, he went to this concert last weekend, and it was one of those weird uh, SoundCloud rappers that a lot of like the young, young kids are into, and the, the thing that he noted about the concert, he just said, he goes, it just seems so nihilistic. And it wasn't so much the content of what was being rapped, but just the spirit of the community, is that there's just this, like, there's no hope for anything, there's this, this stress, so if we can just bury ourselves in empty pleasure, maybe we can escape the pain for one more day. Why do you think that, that suicide is on the increase among teenagers and college age? Why do you think anxiety is such a massive problem, not only in the world, but in the church as well? I think that it, it's, it's a problem in the church uh, it, it, because we are we are also products of our society and it's, it's so easy to lose sight of the very gospel that is meant to anchor us because I went through eight months of severe anxiety leading door of hope. All the while God was saving people through the messages and, and that's, an, that's another troubling reality that I don't have time to get into is God continuing to use us in spite of our brokenness. Even though I would break down crying every hour for about eight months, I was, I was an absolute wreck. Uh, and honestly, still probably, <laughs> eight years later, still recovering from that, that trauma uh, because it revealed my own fundamental brokenness. And that was one of the issues is I didn't see myself as that broken. And the Lord said, Josh, just because you're the pastor doesn't mean you're not a mess. In fact, this is why I now wear the title of amateur pastor so proudly uh, because I am a man without qualifications. Uh, but I believe the amateur is the one who truly loves the thing for the thing itself. I genuinely love Jesus because I know what I've been saved from. 
And here's the thing, that is where we find rest. Rest comes when we come to the Savior. What was one of the things that Tim said about the, the primary theme of Hosea was that one of the issues that, that we find, the reason that we continue to be restless in the pew is because we have forgotten that the supreme goal of the Christian life is not to become more knowledge-filled, not to get more arguments under our belts, not to be, we, we don't need more knowledge. All that does is further condemn us because you can never learn enough. No, that's not the answer. We don't need encyclopedic knowledge bases. What we need is relational knowledge. We need to know that God is with us, for us, and wants to be known and has given to us his Holy Spirit. What my desire for Door of Hope is, is that we would be a place that actually lives out the very cry of Jesus himself when he said, come to me in Matthew 11, all you are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. We need to be, that's right, we need to be more restless than the most restless when it comes to getting the gospel out to the world. But that restlessness, the godly restlessness, is a restlessness that drives us into the world to, to be conduits by which God can seek and save that which is lost, but it is done from a place of being continually in Christ, with Christ in us. We rest while we work. It's a spiritual, internal rest. My guilt, my shame has been removed. I am free to receive God's grace because I recognize that I am a sinner who needs grace every day. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe, neither let it be afraid. So powerful. Now look how this connects to Hosea. Because I want to ask you the question, are you tired of trying to save yourself? Because I know I still find myself exhausted from these attempts. Look what Hosea 6.6 6 says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Notice what he is condemning here God through the prophet Hosea says all your religious impulses all your practices are removed from the the heart of what those practices were meant to do which was to lead you into relational reality it's fascinating that Jesus himself uses this verse and says go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice I'm not interested in your religion what I'm interested in is relationship. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will come to me in the last days and say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do signs and wonders in your name? And Jesus does not deny that they did those things. He says, away from me, I never knew you. You guys, door of hope cannot be a conduit by which the gospel of hope goes forth unless we are a people that hunger for the presence of God. We shouldn't be a people that just are interested in feeding on more information. No, we need to feast on the living Christ. We need to be a people that desire, I will not be satisfied unless 
I taste of your goodness, your presence. We're told that the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts. He pours out the love of God into our hearts, which helps us to know that we are loved, which allows us to love. This is why the love of God is not only elective, he chooses to love sinners in their sin, it's also purifying, that is that it actually brings transformation to the life, and it's creative. He produces something in us that we did not have before we were born again. This is why the gospel is a gift that comes to us freely, but it's also a gift that we become born again, which means that we can't say, I've always been this way, because you've been born again. It's meant to bring change, but the change is to know that we are loved in spite of our brokenness, in spite of the fact that we live in the valley of trouble, but the valley of trouble is the place where the gospel becomes the most real. It's where rest becomes possible, because what does Jesus say? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you are a sinner here today, which I just want to remind you that you are, uh, the good news is you're the one that Jesus came for. He has come to give you his love, to tell you no matter who you are, where you're from, what your upbringing was, what your intellectual capacity is, what your socioeconomic place in the world is. He is saying every one of you are loved as if you were the only ones to love. Jesus wants you to know today, I love you with an everlasting love. Nothing can change that. Nothing. So we move from this place of rest, this peace, and we come to the final statement around the Valley of Achor, and it's here in Hosea. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, I love this statement because the valley of trouble becomes a place where hope is now entered. A place where hope is entered. And the kind of hope that I am speaking of is not the hope of the world, which is I hope the Blazers win the impossible thing of defeating the Warriors. And for those of you who are disappointed, I'm sorry, I I actually have no information about that. I just was trying to show you that I'm in the know. (laughs) Some of you hoped against all odds, and you discovered that you placed your hope in the wrong thing. This hope, (laughs) Romans 5.5 says, and hope does not put us to shame. Does not put us to shame. Isn't it funny how we use hope? I I am joking, but I was looking over at Ryan because he was like, I think they're going to win after they were down two. I'm like, I don't know anything about basketball, and no, they're not. (laughs) And uh, and, and we, 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 we use hope that way. We use hope as like, I really hope that happens. But that's not the that's not the gospel idea of hope. The gospel concept of hope is this. It is desire and expectation. One of the things that is so powerful about my experiences at Holy Trinity Brompton, the thing I love the most about going and visiting there, because there's a lot that's very different from Door of Hope, and there's, I don't think that you can emulate another church community, but the thing that I love there that I think every church should be striving for, and I think one of the things that makes it so powerful that every single stinking time I go to that church, I'm a guy who my wife said I make a good pastor because I have no empathy, uh, and, and when I go there, 
I immediately start crying every time I'm in that room. It doesn't even matter like what the quality of the worship is or even how, how much I connect with the message. There's something about that body, something about that community that I just feel this overwhelming conviction that God really loves me. And I figured out what it is. It's that they have been trained as a community to expect that God is going to show up. That's the thing that Nicky Gumbel and probably the pastor before him and, the, and those around, around them, that they have come to this incredible conclusion that God really does want to meet with his people. And because of that, there is just this joy and this excitement. And it's not just that God wants to meet with them, but that God is crazy about them. In all of their brokenness, in all of their messiness, that they truly function like the family of God. And I just find myself, I'm, I, I love to go back there. I went three times last year because it's just there's something, I'm like, Lord, I want this for Door of Hope. And one of the things is that I want us to live up to our name. I want us to be a place where the valley of trouble has become a door of hope because we communicate the cross so fully that we're not a people that are graduating beyond the gospel. We're not moving into deeper things of God. There is nothing deeper than the forgiveness that God has wrought for us in Jesus. Nothing. There is nothing more miraculous than the transformation of one who was dead and being brought into new life. There's nothing more powerful than the simple message that God really loves you. You know, every person I share the gospel with that I've seen come to faith has never been my argumentation, but I've seen something again and again. Just simply telling someone in a spiritually sensitive place that Jesus loves them almost inevitably brings someone to tears. You know how many people have come into this place and just start crying and they don't know why they're crying? Maybe that's you today. I pray this because you're just experiencing God's presence in this place saying, I love you. Yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're broken. And no, you cannot reach me in your own effort. But that's why I'm here to tell you I've already done it all. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant, he meant what he said. You cannot add to the work of God. And we do a disservice to the church and to Jesus Christ when we as preachers begin to add, add, to the finished gospel. We cannot do that. I invite you today to taste the grace of Jesus, to enter into this place of hope with me. My desire is that Door of Hope truly becomes a place by which the gospel is expressed not only in what is said, but in the spirit of the people that we together as a community would reflect the absolute beauty and messiness of the gospel that all people all people would feel loved when they come in this place, no matter where they've come from. That all people would experience through each of you in your own unique way in which God has made you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, hi, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner. And I've experienced the love of Jesus. I'm so glad that you're here today. That should be the spirit. We come in with a hunger recognizing that we can't live the gospel apart from Jesus and his grace. We become the door of hope, which brings me to this close. Look at this. Jesus has taken our valley of trouble and he has turned it into a place of forgiveness, 
rest, and hope. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus has purchased you at a price. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You have been empowered with the Holy Spirit if you indeed have said yes to his gift. If you've never said yes to his gift, I want you to know right where you're sitting, the reason you're here today is because God has already begun working in your heart. We are only interested in entering into the conversation the Holy Spirit is already having with you. And the, the, the thing that the scripture says is that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. It doesn't say do this, work really hard. And if you believe that in your heart and you don't even know why you believe that because I believe apprehension often comes before comprehension, it's because the Spirit of God is working in you because you know that you are broken because you know you can't fix your life because you know you need Jesus. Maybe you just have never given the need a name. But the one who meets the need does have a name. God is not an idea. He is a person. And it says in the scripture that God has spoken to us at various times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the door of hope. He is the one who has turned our valley of trouble into a place of forgiveness, rest, and hope. Amen? Let's pray.